Thank you. Good morning. Did you think it was an open pulpit today? Just whoever wanted to come up and, and fill it. It is good to see you this morning and good to be back. Uh, I think I've picked up two of the three illnesses this uh, winter that have been going around. So two out of three ain't bad. And, uh, but good to be back and to see you today. And uh, uh, to each of you, we're glad that you're here today. Let's stand together and let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Philippians, uh, chapter 3. Studying the book of Philippians on Sunday morning. And we come to chapter 3, and as we're finding our way there, just a reminder that on Sunday nights, we go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and currently uh, studying in John's Gospel. And so each of you are invited tonight at 6 o'clock for that. We pick things up in Philippians chapter 3 in verse 12. Paul writes, by the Spirit of God, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this same mind, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you, as always, for the privilege of being able to turn to your word and um, not to merely read it and to merely have it go into our minds and to get put in some compartment somewhere, but that by your Holy Spirit, you're able to take it and write it upon the flesh, fleshly tablets of our heart to bring it into application and to impact the deepest parts of our life. And we pray for that work of your Holy Spirit as you would speak to us through it this morning, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Last time, as we studied in verses 1 through 11, we examined the Apostle Paul's instruction concerning the fact that a life of joy can never be found in any kind of a religious system that emphasizes the establishing of our own righteousness or our own rightness before God based upon our own human effort and, and our own uh, works. And that, and that the only righteousness that's acceptable in order to come into relationship with God and also to one day enter into heaven is a perfect uh, righteousness. And it is a righteousness that comes to us when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. It is called an imputed righteousness, so that when we put our faith in Christ, God imputes Jesus' righteousness. That is, he puts Jesus' righteousness to our account, so that positionally, for the rest of our lives and all of eternity, when he looks at us positionally, he sees that righteousness as qualifying us for that relationship with God and also for that uh, entrance into heaven. Uh, this is often referred to as justification, uh, that because of our faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, that positionally God sees us just as if we had never uh, sinned. And that's a, a remarkable uh, thing. Also in verses 1 through 11, Paul wrote of his strong desire to experience everything that can be experienced in the Christian life this side of heaven. Uh, and specifically in verse 10, uh, from the power of Jesus' resurrection to the fellowship of his suffering to even being uh, so conformed to Christ as to be conformed to his death. And Paul wrote in verse 11 of his longing for entering into heaven one day. And as he writes what he wrote there in verses 1 through 11, he doesn't want this zeal that he has for God, 
uh, this love that he has for God, the, uh, the zealous language that he uses there to cause the church in Philippi or uh, to cause us to misunderstand him as communicating that somehow he felt that he had already arrived spiritually uh, or that he was in a state of full maturity uh, as a Christian, or that some way uh, he had already been perfected, as he uh, speaks of it there in verse 12. And so Paul now shifts his uh, focus here in chapter 3 uh, from the focus of this imputed righteousness uh, that is ours as a result of being a Christian, and, uh, and now to the subject of uh, sanctification, to now living a holy life or to living uh, righteously, not only being righteous in the eyes of God positionally, but to, uh, for that to translate into living righteously as Christians in the time between the moment we become a Christian and then that moment that we one day enter into heaven. And in other words, the entire section instructs us that while we do not work for salvation, verses 1 through 11, we do work from salvation as Christians, verse 12 and onward um, in the chapter. That in the light of being born again, having the Holy Spirit indwell our lives, we are not called to continue to live the same old life of sin that we once did, only now uh, being saved, possessing only a positional righteousness in our life uh, before God. But he tells us that this positional righteousness is intended to translate into a practically righteous life uh, as well. So now living a life that's consistent with what God calls us to be as Christians, not in order to be saved, but because we already are saved. And so now having been saved, verses 1 through 11, Paul instructs us about how to grow as Christians into spiritual maturity. You notice in verse 12 that Paul models for us here that, and really throughout the entire section uh, here, uh, and communicates that every Christian's life should be marked by a continual spiritual growth in our lives. Paul wrote this letter to the church at Philippi now after having been a Christian for 30 years after having been an apostle now for 25 uh, years, and yet he declared that he had not reached spiritual maturity yet, that he had not reached spiritual perfection uh, as yet. And if anyone could have claimed to have reached spiritual maturity or perfection, uh, and then chosen to now say, I think I can coast in my relationship with God and I can coast uh, in this regard. It would have been the Apostle Paul, and yet he didn't. You think about how um, uh, jarring that is, what a wake-up call that, that that is, what he is uh, declaring to us when we think back upon uh, the 30 years of his life. And here you have the Apostle Paul as he gets saved there on the way to the city of Damascus. And as he's immediately in the early days of his salvation, he begins to preach Christ in the city of Damascus and creates such an uproar uh, that he ends up having to be lifted over the wall and lowered in a basket to save uh, his, his own life from the persecution while he was waiting for God to reveal his call to uh, him concerning his life work, he evangelized Arabia and Tarsus and Cilicia. And then he moved on to Antioch and Syria at the urging of Barnabas, and he helped him turn the city of Antioch into the great missionary church that it became, the staging center for all of Christendom and the early church for uh, taking the gospel out into the ancient world, including his three missionary journeys. He evangelized the island of Cyprus. He established a string of churches in Galatia, uh, at Antioch and Pisidia, at Iconium, at Lystra, at Derbe, later in northern Galatia. 
He expanded the work of God into Europe, where he planted church in Philippi, in Berea, in Thessalonica, and in Corinth. In Athens, he stands upon Mars Hill, and he makes this memorable address to the philosophers and the intellectuals of the world of that day. He then evangelized Ephesus and planted a church there that became so strong that it became an influence in that entire part of the world and sending out many churches from uh, that church into other areas of uh, Western Asia Minor. He had experienced imprisonment in Rome, uh, but even in those circumstances as he sits here uh, under the constant threat uh, of a, a potential death, and he continued to teach, he continued to preach, he made converts among the imperial guard, and he extended the influence of Jesus Christ right into the palace of Caesar itself. He had been instrumental in the launching of a large number of young men into ministry at a time in which to do so not only meant the the guarantee of persecution, but also the great potential uh, of, of death. And so great was his example that they followed him anyway. Timothy, Titus, Luke, Silas, Sopater of Berea, Aristarchus, Segundus, Gaius, Tychicus, Trophimus, just to name a few. And he had been used by God to uh, perform miracles, healing of the sick, healing of the lame. He had been used by God to cast out demons. He continued his ministry in the face of great hardship for his faith. He had been beaten and scourged and shipwrecked and imprisoned and stoned and mobbed. He knew what it was to be physically exhausted, sleeplessness uh, often and hunger and in thirst and cold and in nakedness. And in the course of those 25 years, he became one of the most Christ-like and mature Christians in the history of God's people. And yet at the end of all of that, as he writes this letter, he declares that he has not yet attained or that he has not yet been perfected. And knowing all of that, is intended to shock any Christian out of even the slightest thought of ever ceasing our spiritual growth, much less actually uh, doing it, and making the point that an imputed or a positional righteousness in the eyes of God through faith, as he describes it in verses 1 through 11, does not negate our responsibility to now grow in practical righteousness. It is never that imputed righteousness never to be used as an excuse for failing to participate in God's lifelong work of sanctification in our life as Christians, his lifelong work of making us more and more uh, into the image of Christ and making the point that not even one single solitary Christian in the whole world should ever stop growing spiritual, spiritually, that not one single Christian in the world should ever grow satisfied with our spiritual maturity and then to cease growing spiritually. We don't get to do that. And here the Apostle Paul is simply not going to allow Uh, any Christian under his influence to mindlessly stop growing spiritually and then somehow think that that's okay. And it's a needed message. It's a strong message, but it's a needed message. Think back to the day that you were saved and ask yourself, how many Christians do you know who are still growing in their Christian life from that time in your Christian life. And I can guarantee you that for most of us, it represents a very small minority of the Christians that we knew and even that we know today. And one of the great threats to Christian growth and maturity is the idea that after we have walked with the Lord for a little while, that somehow we are free to self-determine the spirituality 
that we want to grow to and we want to achieve rather than God determining the spirituality that we grow into and then we stop growing spiritually. And in verse 15, Paul lets us know that only a growing Christian is a mature Christian. No matter how much we know, uh, no matter how much we've experienced, no matter how much Bible teaching uh, we have received or we have, have learned, no matter mu how much uh, about, of that is a part of our life, if we have ceased growing spiritually, we are not mature Christians. And the crazy thing about it in terms of the capacity for self-deception in our lives uh, regarding this is that many Christians stop growing because they now consider themselves to be mature enough to do so. When it's a mark of immaturity, Paul says. And Paul declares that if any of us cease to grow spiritually, that it is, uh, is immature, that it is, a, is childish. It is to view Christianity, it is to view the death and the burial and the resurrection uh, of Jesus Christ in a childish fashion. And so Paul definitely has my attention uh, at this point in, uh, in his letter. Clarifying a little bit Paul's terms as he uses them here and trying to understand what he's saying, when he says, not that I have already attained, that word attained means to take hold of uh, or, or to get hold of. It has the idea of grasping. Uh, he says, I haven't grasped that. I haven't made this entirely uh, mine at this point. To take hold of what? What he had described in, in verse 10. And he's declaring that I want to know Jesus fully. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know the fellowship of his suffering. I want to be surrendered as fully as he was to the Father's will uh, for my life, even being conformed to his death. But I'm not there yet. I am not yet like Jesus in, in my uh, spiritual uh, development and maturity. And if Jesus is the standard for spirituality within Christianity, and he is, there will always be room to continue to grow as Christians spiritually. And the Apostle Paul recognized that even in the face of the incredible accomplishments that he had in God's use uh, of, of him. When he says that I, uh, not that I have already, am already perfected, the idea is that I'm already completed or uh, to finish or to mature. Uh, he's saying that I am not yet complete or fully mature spiritually. Now I think that all of this is very helpful in managing uh, our, not only as it's intended to, to wake us up, if we cease to grow as Christians, but I think it's also very, very helpful in uh, uh, managing our expectations concerning ourselves and, and other Christians. That while spiritual growth is a proper expectation uh, of myself and of other Christians, uh, that uh, it is not a proper expectation Perfection is not a proper expectation or to expect full spiritual maturity uh, of a Christian is not a proper expectation. An application concerning ourselves. Certainly the recognition that as the Apostle Paul declares concerning himself clearly that he is not yet mature. He is not yet uh, perfected. It protects us from the condemnation uh, of the perfectionist in our lives to the degree that he or she lives within us uh, when uh, it becomes apparent that we aren't perfected yet or we haven't achieved full maturity yet by falling short. Uh, of those things and what we say or what we do in the various circumstances of uh, our lives. I remember in my fifth grade 
class at Irene M. Uh, Snow Elementary School taught by Mr. Hampel. Yes, teachers, we remember your names all the way into uh, advanced age. But there was a girl in the class as the, Mr. Hampel was passing back uh, the test results to us. And uh, one of the girls received her test result and she just broke out into cons- uh, uh, consult. Uh, convulsive sobbing uh, at her, her desk and just began to cry uh, uncontrollably and uh, because she had received her test back and had gotten a B on the test. It was the first time in her entire life that she had gotten anything less than an A on any piece of homework or on any test uh, in, in her uh, life. And she couldn't stop crying the entire day as a result of it. I remember feeling sorry for her. Uh, Not that she had gotten a B, but because she had no capacity uh, to enjoy a B. And I I remember that even at that young age, I remember thinking that the standard that this girl is living under is an impossible uh, standard. And that B couldn't have come soon enough in terms of her life to deliver her or begin to uh, in terms of of this idea that a human can be perfect uh, all the time. No human can be perfect uh, all of uh, the time. And I think that Paul was that kind of a religious student. It was all A's until he came to know Christ and then realized that Jesus was the standard and not Paul's fellow uh, religious men. And Paul realized, I'm not going to ace this course called uh, Christianity. I'm not going to ace Christ-likeness in this lifetime and then go on my merry way and then go on to dominate and to uh, uh, conquer some other area in life. Success will not be measured in the Christian life by perfection. Success is measured by progress, by growth. There are going to be C's, and there are going to be B's, and there are going to be D's, and there are going to be F's in the Christian life, and it's not the end of the world. And nothing is a total loss in our lives that we learn something from, and and, uh, we take that something and do better the next time. The only alternative to recognizing that concerning ourselves is to spend my entire life in just a a pit of self-condemnation. I would constantly be condemning myself if I brought that standard of perfection rather than progress into my Christian uh, life, and I would never have the ability to rise up out of that condemnation. It also has an application to others concerning uh, our lives. And it reminds me that the same thing that is true of me as a Christian is so also true of every other Christian in the world. Not one of them is perfect yet, and they will not be perfect this side of heaven, and it corrects any kind of perfectionism that I am then prone uh, to bring to their life or to bring to my relationship uh, with them. And it's an amazing thing, and it's an ugly thing about the flesh, and how quickly I can spot a shortcoming in another Christian's life in some situation, and then have it shock me, or have it disappoint me. And the fact that they have not yet attained, or they are not yet perfected, And where does the fault lie? Does it lie in their imperfection or does it lie in the fact that they haven't attained yet? No, Uh, but I've brought a wrong expectation into my Christian life concerning uh, others. And based upon this passage as Christians, we're free to expect continual spiritual growth of other Christians, but not perfection. Now, I say that with an added uh, warning. 
I have found that most Christians will overlook a lot in our lives as long as we continue to grow as Christians. But if we deliberately cease to grow spiritually, then they lose hope for change in our lives. And they become frustrated, and usually it results in a crisis in the relationship whether within a marriage or in friendships or as we're co-laboring in uh, Christian ministry and so forth. And so we are never to use the fact that we will never be perfect in this life as an excuse to ever stop growing in our Christian uh, uh, life. And Paul did not write this in order to provide us with that kind of an excuse. Additionally, if you're not yet a Christian and you're here today, we're glad you're here. And if you bring an expectation of perfection to how you view and how you see uh, Christians, you need to realize you will never find that. You can expect that in Christ, but you cannot expect it uh, in any individual Christian. You can expect growth, you can uh, recognize growth, but you cannot expect perfection of, of any Christian, much less than using that as a reason not to become a Christian. Notice too, verse, uh, Paul's spiritual uh, growth was uh, determined. Uh, it was energetic, it wasn't a thing of uh, you know, let go and let God in terms of our, our sanctification. And so he didn't view spiritual growth as something that he was going to allow to happen, but he was determined and energetic about it as, as opposed to being half-hearted. You notice the phrases that he uses throughout the passage. Verse 12, but I press on. Uh, verse 12, that I may lay hold Verse 13, reaching forward. Verse 14, I press toward the goal, uh, the, the goal and, and all of it communicating that this doesn't just happen uh, in our lives. When he says, I press on in verse 12, the word uh, it means is the press means to pursue, to chase, to hunt down. Uh, again, verse 13, reaching forward to those things that are ahead. Verse 14, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And the image that he's producing verbally here is one of a foot race in which the runner is giving everything he has or everything that she has uh, to that race. And he or she is leaning into that finish line uh, at, the, at the end of, uh, of the race. And as he heaps these phrases one upon the other, you almost feel as if you're witnessing his race. You can almost feel it, you can almost see him in your mind's eye uh, running as he's doing here, leaning in uh, toward the tape. You can feel the emotion and the excitement of it. I mean, you almost want to rise up out of your seat. And here Paul describes his spiritual race with such uh, emotional terms. He describes it as the most exciting life, this life of growth. Uh, that a Christian, that anyone uh, can ever live the most exciting life imaginable. And to those of you who hate to run, uh, you hate to race, you don't have a competitive bone in your entire body, when you read something like this, it can appear to be the, a portrait of unpleasantness, uh, a portrait of of agony, but any athlete will tell you differently, and you have to look at it through an athlete's eye. It's what an athlete lives for. It's what you've trained for. It's what you've made your goal in life. You dream of it. 
You dream of that race. You dream of that finish. You uh, dream of that feeling that you have at that, uh, that uh, time. You dream of the moment. And Paul describes growth, the, the, the Christian life, in those terms. It's a life of unimaginable excitement and, and glory. And so it is when it's lived uh, that way. It's the most exciting life a person can uh, live because you never know what in the world God is going to do next. And then here you go from so often uh, is a, using a baseball analogy in our spiritual maturity, going from single A to double A to triple A, and you, here you have this, this potential that is within you, and now you're, uh, you're rocking it in single A, and now the excitement of moving now to double A and seeing where my talent and gifting will take me there and then into triple A. And no athlete ever wants to stop short of experiencing the full potential of what it is that's bound up in them. That's the thing that would haunt them for the rest of their lives. And so God takes us and he moves us from one situation to another as we mature. And then with that maturing, that longing then to, to find out what in the world is in my life based upon the Holy Spirit and God working in my life, the gifts that he's given me, the calling that he's giving me, and to find out what is the, the full impact, what is the full experience of these things. And Paul viewed his Christian life in, in that way, and he knew no one would ever experience it. Everyone would remain in single A, uh, or not even get to single A, without this uh, desire uh, to grow spiritually. And then in verse 13, and interestingly, Paul doesn't leave it there. He went on to speak of the necessity of forgetting those things which are behind. No one in any physical race has any hope of winning, certainly not at the sprint at the end of, uh, of the finish line uh, by looking over their shoulders. I mean, some of us, I'm old enough to have watched Wide World of Sports and all these different things, and, 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 and you can go on YouTube and find them where you have cyclists, you have runners. They look over their shoulder at the world's worst time, and then they get, uh, they get passed, right? Uh, at the end, and everybody can testify to the fact that you can't, nobody can run a, a forward effectively and be looking uh, over their shoulder and uh, looking backwards. And in the same way, no one can live this Christian life while looking backwards into their past. And what is behind us in life, what's behind us in this race, we have to leave with God. And, and trust him to work it together for good uh, in, in our lives. This is not saying that we are to forget uh, God's long history of faithfulness in our lives or to forget all of his past mercies or to forget all the valuable lessons that we've learned thus far in our Christian life or all the blessed memories from our past. What Paul is saying is that we are not to set our minds on anything concerning the past that would in any way influence us or affect us adversely in moving forward in my Christian life. And that includes good things that are a part of our past. You think about Paul's successes and his uh, accomplishments that were so wonderful. If he looked back upon those all of the time, he could be lifted up in pride uh, as a result uh, of that. He could have fallen into the idea that I've arrived. I'm the best Christian of anybody that I know and become self-satisfied. And when a person does that, they live their Christian life in their past. They're no longer looking forward. And as we uh, we've seen the Apostle Paul had a mountain of these kind of good things to uh, focus on, and he chose not to do that, to leave it for the day of judgment, the day of reward. This forgetting the things that are behind includes our past sins and failures as well. 
as great as Paul's accomplishments and the goods that he could look back upon in his Christian life, uh, just as great were the sins and the failures that were a part of his past as well. You think about how crippling it could have been to the Apostle Paul uh, if he had spent his mind thinking about uh, his pride and his arrogance and his violence and his hatred and his persecution of the early church before he became a Christian. Think about after all of these years of sanctification in his life where he now, his heart is tender toward people, tender toward the Lord, how he must have then looked back then upon 30 years earlier and looked at that 30 year earlier person that he, uh, that he was and how all of those things could have absolutely uh, condemned him into just this little, tiny, obscure, spiritual corner in his Christian life to where if he allowed those things to dominate from his past, his present, and his looking forward, there would have been no boldness concerning the future. There would have been no hope of great things in his life. He would have lived a life of complete condemnation. And Paul didn't allow his past, those sins and failures, to take him there to incarcerate him in that very, very tiny cell of condemnation. And he tells us that we must not do the same thing uh, either. I suspect that most of us as Christians have uh, regrets uh, in our past concerning our lives. I certainly do. Uh, Things that if we were to dwell upon them, they would condemn us into silence. They would condemn us into the darkest corner in life. They would condemn us from assembling together with the saints. They would condemn us from ever thinking that God could ever bless me or that God could ever use me. There might be some uh, past cruelty done to another physically or verbally that can haunt us or some act of hatred or violence. It can be an abortion. It can be a marriage that ended that we recognize was because of our neglect and because of our pride. It can be the regret of looking back upon our life and, uh, and getting involved with that wrong group. Or it can be some act of cowardice on our part where we fail to stand for what was right in a moment in time that we knew we ought to make a stand in and we folded in the face of it. Or we, a failure to stand by a friend at a critical moment. And all of these kind of things that we can look back upon in our, in our, uh, in our past and which would adversely affect us from moving forward confidently in our Christian life. That's the past that he's telling us that we are uh, to forget about and entrust uh, to the Lord. And then there are all of those things uh, that uh, have been done to us by others that result not only in pain in our lives, but actual damage in our lives. And Paul had plenty of people like that in his life as as, uh, well. And so do most of us. And Paul's entire orientation was future in regard to all of this. And he tells us, Uh, that we must make it our own as well. It's instructive, I think, that that uh, word forgetting as Paul Paul uses there, uh, it is in the present tense. In other words, until we get into heaven, this is something we are going to need to do constantly uh, within our lives. It's not a once and for all kind of thing, uh, but uh, uh, forgetting it by just saying to the Lord, Lord, I commit these things to you from my past. Anything that would lead me to pride, anything that would lead me to condemnation, anything that would lead me to bitterness uh, toward, toward people, and I commit it to you so I can stay focused on pressing forward. And it was the only way that Paul could make it in his life and ministry, and the same thing is true 
uh, with us this morning, the importance of leaving those things with God. And then Paul tells us what he did, that uh, he did uh, all of those things in order to accomplish certain things, in order to pursue certain things. And one of those pursuits he gives us in verse 12, to lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Paul's mind goes back to the road to Damascus where he gets knocked off of his high horse, so to speak, and he's confronted with Jesus and he becomes a Christian. He's converted on that, on that road. And the Apostle Paul didn't view his conversion experience merely as a conversion. He viewed it as an apprehension. He viewed it as God apprehending his life now for God's purposes uh, going forward. And with considerable excitement, Paul declares, not only did he want to explore the fullness of the Christian life as it could be lit, explored this side of heaven, but to experience every bit of God's plan for his life, including verse 10. And he had lived, he had lived his life up to that point with tremendous zeal, tremendous pressing uh, forward for self-righteousness and for pride and, and for sin. And uh, now he wanted to see what would, uh, God would do with his life as opposed to the train wreck he had made of his life. And that's how each of us, Paul is saying, is to view our own conversion. Not only as the day of our salvation, but the day that we were apprehended by God for a specific purpose and plan that he has for our lives and to determine in the power of the Holy Spirit to experience every bit of it. In this regard, I've always liked that four spiritual law track. Uh, there's different versions of them today, but Bill Bright it, it, originally, it had the phrase, God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. And that's the truth. Not merely to save us, but to bring us into the greatest plan for our lives that we could ever uh, live. And I'll add briefly, as Paul speaks about spiritual growth in the context of, of spiritual service, spiritual service, one of the things about spiritual service, whether it's working as to under the Lord where I work or where, uh, where I go to school living for Christ, raising my family, my marriage, viewing everything as ministry, and, and then the things that God calls us to maybe uh, beyond those things. But Christian service forces us to grow continually spiritually in a way that sometimes nothing else in life quite does. I remember um, early in my Christian life being very, very impacted by uh, a, a preacher and an author by the name of G. Campbell Morgan, and he, uh, and he continues to be an influence, but he, he was the pastor of Westminster Chapel in London, England, and he was known as the Prince of Expositors, a tremendous Bible teacher. And uh, Jill Morgan, uh, his daughter-in-law, wrote a biography on him, and uh, she stated concerning the diligence that Campbell Morgan gave to his sermon preparation uh, for his very, very heavily attended uh, Friday night Bible study there in London and his uh, own personal growth that, that it required. She wrote, and I, I quote, the audience had no idea that the teacher was only one step ahead of the congregation. <laughs> and that's the truth. And that kind of thing keeps us growing to stay one step of whatever as it relates to our, uh, our lives. The second thing that Paul did all of that in order to pursue, he tells us in verse 14, uh, is to pursue the prize of the upward call of God uh, in Christ Jesus. And that is to one day stand before Jesus at the Bema Seat of Christ, uh, the reward seat of Christ, and then to one day hear from his very lips, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. And the Apostle Paul's life was dominated by that appointment, that future appointment 
uh, in his uh, life. And ours is to be as well, as he indicates here. And here you have a motivation for sanctification, a motivation for faithfulness and holy living that uh, the self-righteous religion can never, ever provide to us that desire to hear that well done from the lips of our very uh, Savior. No Christian who does not one day hear that well done can ever be said to have lived their Christian life successfully. And no Christian's life who is, that is not marked by not perfection, but spiritual growth will ever hear those words from the lips of Jesus. And so this determined spiritual uh, growth in, in Paul as he, in, in viewing spiritual growth and then with determination moving into it, Paul says in verses 15 and 16, it's a mark of maturity in a Christian. Again, spiritual maturity is not supremely based upon how much we know intellectually, as important as that is, in its own place. But it is determined by a life that is marked by an energetic and determined spiritual growth. It's fascinating, at the end of verse 15, Paul anticipates an argument from some on this issue. You're demanding too much. That's too high uh, of a standard or some kind of looking for a wiggle room on the thing. And Paul, in essence, says, I have told you by the Spirit of God the truth concerning this issue. And so if you want to fight me on this, you go ahead and take it up with God yourself. But he said, do so uh, with the confidence of knowing Paul had that confidence that uh, God would reveal the truth of what had, Paul had spoken here. And then in verse 16, Paul addresses the rest of us in telling us that no matter where we might find ourselves on this long line of, of spiritual uh, growth, on that ruler, so to speak, to just take where we are right now and to embrace his teaching and his example now uh, going uh, forward. And so for those of us who are Christians here this morning, uh, bringing, uh, learning here, uh, the bringing of an expectation of perfection in ourselves or others as opposed to spiritual growth and sanctification is an absolute sure way to blow up any kind of joy in the Christian life because it's an expectation that we will never meet uh, concerning ourselves and, and others will not uh, as well. And then equally, to bring the idea that I can grow to a self-determined place of spirituality and that as a Christian I am now free to choose to cease growing, uh, Paul says that will adversely affect our joy as well. And true joy as a fruit of the Holy Spirit is only found in the Christian life that's described in the scriptures. It is not found in a Christianity of our own making and of our own uh, defining. And there's certainly none of the kind of tangible ex excitement uh, in that kind of self-defined Christian life that we see in verses 12 and 13, the excitement of I press on, reaching forward. There's no anticipation in that kind of life for the Bema seat. In fact, the Bema seat or the reward seat uh, becomes something that uh, it, it, a person doesn't want to face. And instead, in this, where a person will stop and say, this is as far as I go, grow, I am content with this, and I have no interest in growing any further. At that moment in a Christian's life, now it just becomes a long, slow, boring, monotonous slog toward uh, death. There's no joy in it at all. Not the joy that God intends us to have. So it's a heavy passage. 
But it's a needed passage, or Paul wouldn't have written it by the Spirit of God. So if we sit here this morning and we say, I have long ago stopped growing spiritually. I determined myself spiritually enough, spiritual enough for the rest of my life. And that has ceased in my life years ago, months ago, a day ago. Then to look at the passage here, and I exhort myself, to look at the pa- uh, passage uh, here and to say, God, I see that I've made a great mistake here, a great sin here. I recognize it. I repent of it. And then now I rededicate my life to you and to not merely being saved, but committing my life to the purposes for which you have saved me as well. And the Lord will meet us there, and then we can move forward and be growing in the Christian life and growing into into a life that is the most exciting life that a person can live. If you sit here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, God does love you, and he has a wonderful plan for your life. And it begins with you confessing your sin to Jesus, uh, to God, putting your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of that sin, repenting of that sin, and now being born again by the Holy Spirit to begin the life that God now has planned for you. I don't know, some of us, we come, some of us come to, to the Lord when we're on a mountaintop high experience and it's so empty and it's so lonely. We say, that, I dedicated my life to that. And, and the emptiness brings us to the Lord and, and, and the uh, disappointment. And then there's a lot of others of us who, there comes a point where we say, I have made an absolute wreck of my life. And the offer that God has a plan for my life and wants to take over the steering wheel and lead me into that, I am all for it. But whatever your, your place may be in life, you need to be saved. And there are going to be men and women up in front immediately after the service who would love to answer your questions and, and then to experience Uh, God coming into your life today by means of a spiritual birth, and we encourage you to do that. Let's stand together now, and we'll close in prayer.